0: Last week, I came across what I would consider a treasure as I looked into the life story of Frances Ridley Havergal. And if that name doesn't sound familiar, she's the one who wrote the words to the hymn we sang this morning Take My Life and Let It Be. Frances Havergal was a 19th century English poet, a hymn writer. In fact, our hymn book has eight hymns that are, were written by her, including Like a River Glorious. I gave my life for thee, and who is on the Lord's side? And I discovered in looking at her life story that uh, she's also written a book called Kept for the Master's Treasure, or Kept for the Master's Use. I was going to say that is a real treasure, Kept for the Master's Use. And basically her book uses scripture and her poetry to show us in very practical ways how to consecrate our entire lives to God. And the book consists of separate chapters. Each one is built on a couplet from that well-known hymn, Take My Life, Take My Moments, Take My Days, Take My Voice, Take My Hands. And one that I like, Take My Intellect, (laughs) Take, Take My Heart. And she encourages us to take every single aspect of our lives and consecrate it for the Lord's use. And we're shown very clearly that, quote, He who is able and willing to take unto himself is no less able and willing to keep for himself. And so Havergol encourages us to choose this day whom we will serve with real, thorough-going, wholehearted service. Now, when I come across any potentially good book, it's a real temptation for me to buy the book. Just ask my wife and my kids especially the mention of a book that could be, its message could be life-changing. And so I try my best not to buy any particular book that piques my interest or I'm interested in until I've wanted it three times, until the third time. That's supposed to keep me from impulse buying, but nevertheless, I went on Amazon this is my first look to see if the book kept for the master's use that was written hundred and some odd years ago to see what is available and what the price might be, knowing in my heart that I really wanted to read it, especially as my excuse for sermon preparation this week. Well, on Amazon, the book was six ninety nine for the paperback in a new edition. I thought that's pretty good. Three twenty nine for the Kindle edition, not too bad. But rules are rules, especially for a book addict. And so in the last two months, I'd already bought one book per month. Uh, I bought a Kindle book by William Wilder called Real Christianity, another treasure. One by John Piper on the sovereignty of God in preaching, uh, another treasure. So I looked down the webpage of the Kindle books and I noticed the original edition of her book was free on the Kindle app. I haven't seen one of those for a long time. Usually they're 99 cents, if, if anything. If they're, uh, and so that made the book even more of a special treasure. Can't pass up a free book, right? As I started reading the book, I discovered that it was written in a style that we don't see very much these days. From the very beginning of the book, Havergal is plead, pleading with her readers to fully consecrate their lives to God. She urges, she appeals to them, And if you've read any of the classic works on prayers by E.M. Bounds, anybody read E.M. Bounds' book on prayer? It's much the same style. E.M. Bounds literally begs his readers. He uses that word beg. Begs his readers to see absolutely how vital prayer is. He begs his readers to, to not rest contented with the commonplace religion that is so prevalent. And Frances Havergal writes in much that same style, that urging, that beseeching the readers. And I pulled out, it's quite a long quote here, but it's really good. It's about how she she urges us to find our heart finding rest in God and finding satisfaction in Him. And so she writes, Do not shrink and suspect and hame back from what it may involve, with selfish and unconfiding and ungenerous half-heartedness, Take the word of any who have willingly offered themselves unto the Lord, that a life of consecration is a deal better than they thought. Choose this day whom you will serve with real, thorough, going, wholehearted service, and he will receive you. And you will find, we have found that he is such a good master, that you are satisfied with his goodness, and that you will never want to go out free from his service. You cannot possibly understand that till you are really in his service. For he does not give or even show his wages before you enter it. And he says, my servant shall sing for joy of heart. But you cannot try over that song to see what it is like. You cannot even read one bar of it till your nominal or even promised service is exchanged for real and undivided consecration. But when he can call you my servant, then you will find yourself singing for joy of heart, because he says you shall. And who then is willing to consecrate his service this day unto the Lord? When we come to Romans chapter 12, Paul writes in this same vein of begging, pleading with his readers. Verse 1 of Romans chapter 12, he says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. I urge you, I beg you, I beseech you. The word translated there, urge, really means to beg, to beg. Sometimes it's translated beseech. The Greek word is parakale. It means to come alongside. Paul says, I come alongside to call you to this. It's a word of tenderness. It's a word of support and help. The word literally means to come alongside to give aid, parakale. Now remember, the Holy Spirit is called the paraclete, the paraclete, the one called alongside to help us, to comfort us. The word is sometimes translated to comfort or to help. And so the noun we call the Holy Spirit, he is the comforter, the helper, one who comes alongside to give aid. It's a word of gentleness. It's a word of tenderness. It's the word of of affection. It's the word of help. The EMT, when you call the, the ambulance and they come, they come alongside to give aid. They are a paraclete in that regard. And so Paul comes alongside brothers and sisters in Christ. Brethren refers to both brothers and sisters who are already bent towards this kind of dedication. Why? Because their souls have already been given to God. So this isn't anything strange to them. It isn't anything far removed from their heart's desire. In fact, it's the most natural response to our redemption. The most natural response to our salvation and our justification. And so Paul speaks to them in terms of love and he calls them as fellow brothers and sisters. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, then, is one of the most potentially life-changing passages of Scripture in, in God's Word. After the Apostle Paul spent 11 chapters laying out the great doctrines of salvation, and ending chapter 11 with that great doxology of worship and praise, Paul is still on his knees, as it were. Still on his knees. And he turns from the vertical, from praising God, from glorifying God, to the horizontal, pleading with his readers. And the question at this point in the letter to the Romans is, now what are you going to build your life on? What are you going to build your life on? How are you going to live by what you have experienced in Jesus Christ in your salvation? How are you going to live now that you've trusted Christ for your salvation and have come to understand God's purposes and and his plan? Because when you really come to terms with verses 1 and 2 of Romans chapter 12, and you really want to do and you do do what Paul begs you to do here, you'll never be the same again. This is a life-changing moment. Life-changing moment. But it also begs the question, to use a play on word for that beg, if you haven't consecrated your life to God, if you haven't presented your body as a living sacrifice to him, then why not? What's holding you back? And when are you going to do it? Now notice the basis, the motivation on which Paul makes his appeal to consecrate our lives to God Why consecrate our lives to God? What is the motivation? Why would we want to do it? Verse 1 again. Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. Now Paul is not saying that we present our bodies to God so that we can receive his mercy. That that we do something for him, as it were. We give something to him, so he gives something back to us. It's, it's not a quid pro quo, where if I dedicate my life to God and serve him, then I'm going to receive his mercies, or I'm going to get all kinds of benefits. If I give him something, well, he gives me something back. We don't consecrate ourselves to God in order to receive mercy. We consecrate ourselves to God because we've already received his mercies. Since we have experienced the mercies of God, we ought to do this. Now, sure, there are many benefits and blessings in, in living a life that is devoted to God. And Frances Havergal rightly urges her readers, beseeches them, commit their lives to God so that they will experience the benefits and blessings that God has for us. Because it, it does put us in a position where we consecrate our lives to God to to receive all that he has for us, but we we don't consecrate our lives to God in order to get the blessings and benefits. The blessings and the benefits are not the correct motivation for dedicating ourselves to God. The mercies of God that we have already received are. As believers, we have experienced the mercies of God. And since we have experienced the mercies of God, therefore, we ought to do this. The psalmist asked in Psalm 116, verse 12, and I read this as our offertory scripture this morning, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? What can I give to God or recompense him, render back to him for all all that he has given to me, for all his benefits to me? What can I give back to the Lord for what he's done for me? And what the psalmist is asking or saying is, I can't think of anything that would be equal to what he has done for me. Can't think of a thing. Well, fortunately, God doesn't expect equal in return. All he asks is that in view of the mercies we have received and we have experienced, we give ourselves as a living sacrifice. So what are the mercies of God? It's not difficult to determine, is it? The mercies of God are everything that God has done for the believer that are listed in chapters 1 through 11 of Paul's letter to the Romans. The whole thing. Everything that God has done for you in saving you. The provision of God's mercy for our sin. Love, grace, peace, the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. Faith, power, patience, eternal life, eternal security, justification, sanctification, hope, Kindness, goodness, forgiveness, adoption as sons and daughters, resurrection, and so on. All of these are the mercies of God. In other words, the mercies of God are summed up in all the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. All that we have become because of Jesus, all that we are, and all that God has done for us and given us because of Jesus Christ. What should be our response as those who have received so much? Does it seem a great thing that we give back to God our very selves? Is is that a great thing? And so Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 give us the key to the Christian life. The key to the Christian life. Now that we are saved, justified, that is, we're in right standing with God, born again and dwelt by the Spirit of God on account of God's mercies, How do we go about actually living the Christian life? How do we live a life that's pleasing to God? How do we live a life that's useful to him in serving him and in serving others? And that's what the remainder of the letter of the book of Romans is all about. How do we live a life that's pleasing to God, useful to him, in serving him and serving others? Another way to put it is this, and we're going to see more of this in verse 2 next week, where we encourage to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that is, transformed into the image of Christ. So another way to put this is, what is the key to becoming more like Jesus Christ? What is the key to becoming Christ-like, being transformed into his image, becoming like Christ in our, our actions in our love, in our behavior, in our service, and as we'll see next week, in our thinking, in our thinking, the renewing of the mind that we might be transformed. And so the answer to all these questions is summed up in these first two verses of Romans chapter 12. The key to the Christian life, the key to becoming more like Christ does not lie in trying to get everything we can get from God. But the key to becoming more like Christ, the key to the Christian life, is giving all that we are and all that we have to God. The key to becoming like Christ is not try, does not come in trying to get all we can from God, but in giving all that we are and all that we have to God. In a word, it all comes down to worship. 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 Worship as a way of life, not worship that we just do once in a while on a regular basis and do this or that or whatever it is as worship, but worship as a way of living. Worship. And this is what Paul calls us to when he calls it your spiritual service of worship. where our worship of God is the response that all that we are to all that God is and does. And as you've probably noticed, there there is a popular form of Christianity today. A form of Christianity that focuses on what a person can get from God. Right? You've probably seen these guys on TV. If you send in the bucks, if you have enough faith, or you help him buy his jet airplane, (laughs) you can get from God. Whether it's health, wealth, prosperity, healing, blessings, Answered prayers? Now, in among themselves, there's, there's nothing wrong with these blessings. <laughs> God does bless with health and prosperity and healing and, and answered prayers and blesses with, in many ways. There's nothing wrong with these blessings if God chooses to bless us and we praise him for these kinds of benefits toward us. But we don't worship God for what we can get out of it. We worship God because he is worthy of our worship. I like to read a lot of A.W. Tozer. In fact, uh, on my Logos Bible software, I have 54 books written by A.W. Tozer. So I I, I confess, my name is Bill. I am a book addict. (laughs) A.W. Tozer said of this, worshiping God for what we can get out of it, he says, whoever seeks God as a means towards desired ends will not find God. God will not be used. In other words, as Warren Wiersbe put it, if you worship God because it pays, it won't pay. But if we look upon worship and consecrating ourselves to God as a means of getting Something from God rather than giving something to God, then what happens is we make God our servant instead of our Lord. And the elements of worship become a cheap formula for selfish gratification. As soon as we worship God because we want to be blessed or we want to get something out of it or we worship or serve God for any kind of self interest, we forfeit all the benefits of true worship. We forfeit all the benefits of being devoted to him. In fact, there's really a real sense that that is false worship and it's involved in self-centered service. We worship God because he is worthy. And that's it. And the true expression of our worship flows out of a heart of gratitude and praise for who he is and what he has done for us. So let's look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1 again the first verse of Romans chapter 12 again, where Paul draws heavily on the language of sacrificial worship. He says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The Greek word translated present there was used in Paul's day as a technical term, referring to the offering of a sacrifice for the laying of an animal or whatever it is on the altar of God, presenting. Uh, The temple priest placed the offering. He presented the offering on the burnt altar as an act of worship. He presented a sacrifice. The difference, of course, is that we are living sacrifices rather than dead corpse, right? In Christian in Christian worship, we don't place goats and bulls or sheep on the altars they did in the Old Testament. We place ourselves, our bodies. But still the same, true worship demands a sacrifice. For example, on account of the sacrifice of the Lamb of God on the cross, believers can boldly enter into God's presence And with the fruit of our lips, it says in Hebrews, with the fruit of our lips, I think those words were in one of our songs we sang this morning, we can offer up a sacrifice to God. With the fruit of our lips, it's a sacrifice. Now, why does praise qualify as a sacrifice? It's because you can't exalt God and at the same time lift yourself up. And so you're sacrificing yourself, who you are, so in order that we might exalt God. Another place that it's called a sacrifice to worship is when we give to support the gospel ministry. When the believers at Philippi gave an offering to support Paul on his missionary journey, to support missions, Paul says it's a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. A fragrant aroma, just like the burnt offering. God said, in effect, that is pleasant to my nostrils. That, that, that is pleasing to me, and it's acceptable to me. So, so when you put your money in the offering plate, when you send an offering to, to support a missionary, it's a fragrant aroma, it's an acceptable sacrifice. Why? Because you're not spending the money on yourself, you're investing it in, in God's work. And that is true worship. That is why we pass the offering plates in this church on a Sunday morning. Now, I've been in churches where they put the offering box in the back, and that's fine with them. That's, that's okay. I'm not going to, to criticize that. But I think it takes a marvelous type of worship out of the context of the corporate worship of the church as we offer our sacrifice. What shall we render unto the Lord for all his benefits towards me? So when we give to the others who are in need, God deems it a sacrificial Worship. Now, the Lord no longer accepts the sacrifice of dead animals because the Lamb of God was sacrificed in our place. Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross. But now we offer ourselves all that we are and all that we have. And God says, this is acceptable to God. Paul says, this is your spiritual service of worship. And Paul says, we are to present our bodies, our bodies, th- this physical habitation of which <laughs> we, are, we are housed. Why didn't God say, your souls? Why don't you present your souls to him? Why don't you give, in that sense, the inner person who you are as, as, as a sacrificial worship? Well, it's very simple. God already has our soul, right? Right? If we're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's already got that. If you are a believer, he already has that that inner man. He already has that that real person, that real self, the eternal me, the new creation that's, that's created in order to, or given and created in order to live in, with him for all eternity that has been transformed by his saving grace. So God already has my soul right? My soul is already secure and safe in him. Now he's asking for our bodies. What he wants me to give now, he wants the real me, who I am in Christ, to give my body to him. The new me, the new creation is now called upon to present the body in which the real me lives. So we are priests who offer up the body. Now, that's not an easy thing to do. Somebody said it isn't always easy. I don't know if it is ever, ever easy. Because the body is the place in which our humanus resides. If you don't think so, then you've missed the point of death. What what is the point of death? Because when a, a believer dies, the spirit goes to heaven, right? To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The body goes to the grave, and once that separation is made then sin is no longer a problem right and then we're given a new glorified body you know so the body is which contains our humanness the body is we could say in this regard is our flesh and our flesh contains this horrible thing according to Romans chapter 6 and 7 our sin Our sin is encapsulated, as it were, in our body. And the body is the place of our flesh, which has been trained and tainted by sin. Why is it so hard to give up those bad habits of sin, even though you receive Jesus Christ? It's because from the day you have been born, your sin has been training your body to do this, to want this, to do that, and the other thing. And because of our sin nature, it's a very easy thing to train to sin. You know, why Why does a baby cry as soon as the baby is born? Because it wants. It desires. It doesn't like this. It's been safe in the mother's womb where it's been warm and comfortable and, and life is good. And you can, feel, you can feel the mommy patting her belly and you go, oh, that just feels good. I'm just so safe and good in here. And all of a sudden, boom, you're out in this horrible world. And all of a sudden, you're hungry. You hurt, you got all this other stuff that, that's, that's going on, and then sin comes in and because of sin, you know. And so all of our life, when we see this and want that and the other thing and want to do something, the body has been trained and tainted by sin. And that's why Paul ends Romans chapter seven: 7, oh, O wretched man that I am, who will release me from this body, body of sin? And so it is essential then that we yield the body. Turn back to Romans chapter 6, verse 12, because this isn't the first time in Romans that Paul has talked about our bodies. Verse 12 of Romans chapter 6. He says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting There's the word again. Presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But what? Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members of instruments of righteousness to God. Sin will no longer reign in your soul when you receive Jesus Christ, but sin is going to remain there in your body. And your lustful body is going to want to present its members the members of its body be careful little hands what you do be careful little eyes what you see be careful little feet where you go all of that as as instruments of unrighteousness you see something that is desi- desirable you know you're going down through facebook or whatever or, you know and you go wow that that appeals to the flesh you know and there there are fleshly desires that you want to want to experience and so When lust is conceived, James says, you present yourself to your body to it and you obey its lust. But what Paul is saying here is let the real you, let the real you, who you are in Christ, present yourself to God. Present your body to God. And the point here is to stress that your body counts, you're not just soul and spirit. You are body, soul, and spirit. And you are to consecrate yourself to God, yes, soul, and body, and spirit. But you have to consecrate your body to the Lord because your body matters. Now, you might not think your body's that much. (laughs) You might think your body's weak. It's got some weaknesses. You have illness. You have disease. You could have age or, or disability. Or you might think, well, I'm not very athletic. You know, I'm not like that guy. I say, boy, he can do a lot for the Lord because look at all the energy and the strength the Lord gave him. You might not think you're very talented. You know, I can't do such and such like somebody else. And you wonder, well, what kind of sacrifice would my body be? Have you taken a good look at my body lately? I did this morning. (laughs) So you wonder, you know, what kind of sacrifice is this, Lord? Why would God want this stupid thing? <laughs> Why would God want my body? It can't see very well. It has a tendency to pass out. <laughs> it gets lost in traffic in Boise. You know, God, how can you send me there? I can't even get there. How, are we supposed to, how am I supposed to take my body there? And the body's not even close to a perfect sacrifice that's demanded in the Old Testament. But again, we must remember that Jesus Christ was the perfect sacrifice. He was the only perfect sacrifice for sin. And besides, we must put out of our mind that God demands perfection. God doesn't demand perfection for our sacrifices to be acceptable. So, so put out of your mind any thought that your body will ever deserve acceptance with God because it never will. If you are acceptable, and you are as a believer, it is through Jesus Christ. Through his perfection, not your perfection. But that kind of thinking kind of misses the point in another way. The offering of our bodies is not the offering of our bodily looks. It's not the offering of our abilities. It's not the offering of our talents. Yes, we'll talk about spiritual gifts in the next few weeks. That's a whole different thing. You know, it's, it's... You know, in the Bible, the body is not significant because of the way it looks. The body is significant because of the way it acts. Men look upon the outward appearance of the body, but God looks at what? The heart. And this is really key here. The body is given to us by God as a believer. The body is given to us by God To make visible the beauty of Jesus Christ. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. That wonderful song. And Jesus Christ, at the hour of his greatest beauty, have you ever thought of this? When was the time of his greatest beauty? When he was dying on the cross, right? And when he was repulsive to look at. Go back to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53. The 53rd chapter of Isaiah, verses 2 and 3. This was the hour of Jesus' greatest beauty. It says in verse 2 of Isaiah 53, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. The beauty of Christ was not his physical appearance or or the beauty of looks, but it was the beauty of love. It was the beauty of holiness. His beauty was not the beauty of uh, of, it was the beauty of sacrifice, not the beauty of skin. God doesn't demand our bodies because he wants models for some magazine or, or that they're athletic and can do one thing or the other, or he doesn't want American ninja warriors. He wants our bodies because he wants models of mercy. Models of mercy in two two senses. He wants our bodies, so we give our bodies to him. people look at us and say, wow, look how merciful God is. Look how loving God is. Look how gracious God is. And then he wants us to be models of mercy because in the next chapter, the rest of the chapter in Romans chapter 12, we find how we bestow mercy to others in the same way that Jesus has bestowed mercy mercy to us. God wants visible, lived out bodily evidence that the world can see that our lives are built on the mercies of God. So presenting your body is coming before God, placing yourself on the altar, and offering yourself as a living sacrifice. Or as I like the way Chuck Swindoll likes to say it, the only problem with the living sacrifice is it wants to keep squal- uh, uh, keeps crawling off the altar. But when the sacrifice is living, it changes the whole dynamic of a sacrifice, doesn't it? Now, it is true that animal sacrifices were living when they were first brought to the altar. In fact, it said in the Old Testament law that a dead animal could not be brought as a sacrifice. What kind of sacrifice is that? You go out into the field and you find out that in the night one of your sheep have died. And so you go, okay, I'm going to take that down to the temple and offer as a sacrifice. That's no sacrifice at all. All that might do is just have to save you from burying it or taking care of the body or something. There's nothing sacrificial about that at all. But once the live animals were brought to the altar, they were killed on the altar. And then they are offered as dead. In fact, Paul speaks of this uh, as believers as dying to sin. In Romans 6, 2, he says, How then shall we who have died to sin still live in it? So there is a death. We have died to sin. And Paul's emphasis there is on the glorious life. We now live in Christ. We are alive from the dead. Romans 6, 8. If we have died with Christ, there is a death. We will live with him. As offered, as presented on the altar, we were dead to sin. We are dead to sin, but we are alive to Christ. And so the living sacrifice of the believer doesn't demand the destruction of the sacrifice. And here's where it really gets good. But a living sacrifice brings that full energy of life that is in Christ Jesus. That full energy of living in Christ. It's called the fullness of life. We could call it the abundant life. All that it means to live the life of Christ. All that it means to make his beauty visible. It's positive. It's dynamic. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in me. All his wonderful passion and purity. O thou spirit divine. All my nature refined. Till the beauty of Jesus Be seen in me. And the sacrifice, Paul says, is also holy. A holy sacrifice. Here, the idea of holy is that it's consecrated, it's dedicated. The word holy means to be set apart. It's entirely set apart and given over to God. It's entirely set apart, entirely given to God for His use and His pleasure. We give our lives, our bodies, to him, Lord, use it for your use. Use it for, for your pleasure. And then Paul says it's acceptable to God. Back in Romans again. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Only a living, a holy sacrifice of giving ourselves to God is acceptable worship. And that's the only way we can give him our spiritual service of worship. Joshua said, as quoted by Francis Havergal, Choose this day whom you will serve. Choose this day whom you will serve. We have come to a point to a scripture passage in Scripture and it's really quite simple. Will you go out from here this morning having been in worship? Will you go out from here determined to live for yourself? What you want, what you desire. Will you get on Facebook or social media to find out what's going to give you a personal thrill or pleasure or kudos or or whatever it is? Will you go out and use your body to satisfy yourself? Or will you offer yourself to God, your body, as a living sacrifice? And you will go out from here living in all that joy, all the blessing that God Has given to you, because here and now. You know, and for me, I I think it's a a, almost a daily thing to offer my body as a living sacrifice. You know, we offer our souls to God once, and we're we're good with the soul. Our body, you know, uh, this is something that every time we worship, we're offering our bodies to Him as as a living sacrifice, and we can do that here and now in the quietness of our hearts, as we sing our invitation hymn, I Surrender All. And I'm going to leave that up between you and the Holy Spirit. You know, what is it that God would have you do at this very moment as we offer ourselves, our bodies, to Him? Shall we pray? Our Heavenly Father, this is one of those places, one of those scripture passages, one of those truths that, uh, Lord, we thank you that you have given us your Holy Spirit. Father, because this these things are difficult because the flesh says, oh, don't do that. I don't want to do that. No, that doesn't sound good at all. But Father, I pray that in our hearts because of your mercies, because you have saved us, you have loved us, you have given us your tender mercies, Father. What can I render unto you for all the benefits that you have given me? Lord, I can't think of a one, but I do know, and we know, that we can give our very selves to you. And help us to be able to do that as we sing this hymn today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.